Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 this morning. Well, book of Romans. Uh, we started the book of Romans last September. I want to kind of state this because sometimes folks who are new to us, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a book, uh, may not realize what we do. And so our um, main focus of preaching is what we call expository preaching. And so a lot of times that means we preach through books of the Bible. And uh, we started Romans last September. Lord willing, we will finish at the end of November this year uh, with a few breaks in between this summer. Uh, And so today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 9. We just didn't pick this out of the air. We've been working through this book for many months now, and here we are at Romans chapter 9 today. And I say that because Romans chapter 9 is an extremely difficult passage. Not difficult to understand. It's pretty clear. It's difficult to accept, we could say. So I want to give you two, uh, two caveats, if you will, as we approach this chapter today. One, Romans 9 through 11 must be read as a unit. Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11 must be seen in its context. If you just lift out one or Romans 9, you've probably not heard any sermon, many sermons on Romans 9. I've never preached Romans 9. Uh, I don't know that I have ever heard, even at a conference, a passage uh, or someone preach Romans 9. I think I've heard maybe a few sermons on, uh, online, uh, but it's rare that you would hear that. Now, you hear Romans 10 a lot. We like to post those verses on tracks and hand them out for gospel conversations. Uh, but rarely do we hear Romans 9, 10, and 11. So they're, at, they're a unit, and they must be read as a unit. You will not understand them correctly unless you understand them in their context. And so keep that in mind, because it's going to take us a while, a few Sundays, to get through Romans chapter 11. So just hold on as we walk, walk through some uh, pretty deep terrain here. And then a second thing. Some of the things that you will find in Romans 9 in particular, and Romans 11 as well, um, they will push you a bit. If you've not read this chapter before, if you have, and you're like, wow, I don't understand, it's going to push you. It still to this day pushes me. Um, And so there are some things in these chapters that are tough for our um, self-determining, autonomous, individualistic kinds of people to receive, to hear, and to, to to uh, believe. And so these verses are going to push many of you, some of you. Um, They continue to push me. And so just keep those things in mind as we approach this, and particularly because they can be hard. um, One of the things that's a reality is that passages like this will test your belief in biblical authority. It will test your belief because what we tend to do and what we like to do, especially when we come to hard things in the Bible, is Many times we are tempted to briefly abandon a biblical authority and read the Bible through the lens of our feelings and our own thoughts and preconceived notions. Bad idea. What we have to do is learn to gauge our beliefs and our feelings, emotions, and thoughts through the lens of Scripture, not the other way around. All of us bring baggage. All of us bring uh, preconceived thoughts and beliefs and notions and and the ways that we think about things to the Bible, we have to learn by God's grace to understand, okay, I need to submit those things underneath the authority of the Bible, let the Bible say what it says, and let the Lord teach me and open my mind and understanding, so then comes my belief and my thoughts and my feelings. You'll know what I mean when we get into the text. Let's read this passage and then pray. 
Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, these are the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Paul writes this. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears, wit- bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6 is key verse to the entire chapters uh, ahead. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray together. Father, it is our, our desire by your grace and your Holy Spirit to understand your word. And not only, Lord, to understand it, but, Lord, to be transformed and changed by it. Father, even as we approach these verses this morning, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your wisdom and clarity and understanding. Father, it's our desire that we would understand your word correctly today. So, Lord, that we would give you the proper praise and worship. So, Lord, that we would live in ways that would please you. So, Father, we ask now that you would come and tend to our hearts and minds, that we would be compelled and gripped and changed by your holy word to your glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come out of Romans chapter 8 and... All of us should be on cloud nine. But what we find is ourselves glaring at Romans 9. Romans 8 is a beautiful, amazing, glorious chapter that's filled with these wonderful verses of security. There's therefore now no condemnation. Begins chapter 8 and it ends with nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a glorious text that speaks to the amazing grace and work of God to keep his people for himself For his glory. So when you come out of Romans chapter 8, if you were to turn the page, uh, a few or however many pages it is, or if you were to swipe on your little device, um, and you go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Romans 12 begins a section of this um, book that is highly practical. So what you have in Romans chapters 1 through 11 is very theological, 
not that there isn't anything practical, there is, but certainly a, a very deep explanation of the gospel. And then Romans 12 through 16 is the practical outworking of that fact. You're saved by grace, Romans 1 through 11. This is now how you ought to live, verses 12 through, or chapters 12 through 16. By the time you get to the end of chapter 8, you could take chapter 12, verse 1, and bump it right up next to the end of it, and it flows beautifully, all right? There's, ne- there's nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because of all these wonderful, glorious truths, you ought to present your bodies as living sacrifices. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Then all of a sudden, that's not what happens. Paul doesn't do that. Instead, what we have is Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, sandwiched right in between. Why does he do that? Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with a significant dilemma that Paul was concerned about. As amazing as Romans 8 and all of the chapters preceding it, as amazing as, the, as amazing as those first eight chapters are, the problem that Paul is aware of is that there is a significant number of people that were not experiencing the benefits of these wonderful truths. And those people that he's thinking about, the vast majority of them are Jews. I mean, he's just written or had his scribe write, as we'll see in Romans chapter 16, all of these amazing truths about God's grace. And it's as if Paul gets to the end of Romans 8 and he's thinking about this wonderful reality of how there's no separation, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and he's grieved while at the same time rejoicing. He's rejoicing because of how rich and true it is, but at the same time, he is grieved because he knows that the vast majority of his own people are not experiencing these realities. John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, point us to this. Speaking of Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So the problem is that the gospel has gone out, the gospel has been proclaimed, and the vast majority of the Jewish people have said, don't believe it. Jesus is not the Messiah. So then, leads Paul Maybe to ask in his own heart, but certainly maybe he had heard this as he had gone about his own ministry. So then does that mean that God's word has failed? And God made promises to Israel, and now the vast majority of them aren't believing it. Does that mean that God's word has failed? Has God's plan been hijacked? This is critical. This is what Paul is seeking to answer. I mean, this is the people that God made covenant with, that God made promises to. And now most of them had rejected Christ as the Messiah. And Paul's response is simple. God's word has not failed. God's word has not failed. Regardless of what you see, regardless of what he saw around him, the vast majority of the Jewish people not believing in Jesus, no matter how things seem to be going, it is a fact that God's word has not and cannot fail. And then he gives evidence as to why that is true. Two points. 
that we're going to look at today. Two reasons why God's word has not failed. You see that there in verse 6. This is really the, the main idea that we're looking at. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the main point Paul is making, not just in chapter 9, but chapter 9, 10, and 11. God's word has not failed. Regardless of what you may see pertaining to the Jewish people, God's word has not failed. And the reasons are divine promise and divine election. Those are the two answers he gives we need to unpack that, so don't check out with me now, all right? Got to unpack that a bit. Those are the, that's what he says. God word, God's word hasn't failed, and the reason we know that is because of divine promise and divine election. And those are what we're going to look at this morning in the first 13 verses. Let's look, first of all, at divine promise. Notice Paul, as he begins chapter 9, he, he unfolds the dilemma. He unfolds this situation regarding the Jewish people through his pastoral burden and concern. Look at this. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. See, Paul had become an apostle to the Gentiles, but that didn't mean that he had forgotten his Jewish heritage or his own people. He loved the Jewish people, and yet the struggle he had was why did so many of them not believe in Jesus? I mean, look at all Israel had. That's, that's his point in verse 4. He's, he's anguished, he's sorrowful, he's, he's burdened in verses 2 and 3, and he's, he's saying, look, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, the patriarchs, and not only that, the Messiah. Look at all that they had. And yet, so many of them did not believe. They had enormous religious privilege. That cannot be overstated. They had enormous religious privilege. You see that there in verse 4, all of these things that they had. And so Paul's struggle here is simply, how can basically a thousand years or more of promise and covenant and leaders, prophets, and then a Messiah, how can all of these things just simply be cast off, rejected? Think about that for a minute. The, the reality Paul's dealing with is that Israel had about as much religious privilege as one could ever ask for, and yet most of them stood condemned. So then, does that question God's character? After all, he made promises to Israel. He made covenants with Israel. He made all of these wonderful commitments to Israel throughout the Old Testament, and now we find ourselves facing the fact that the Messiah has come, and so many of them, the vast majority of them, reject him. Does that then question the character of God? No. It's Paul's answer. It's not as though the word of God has failed. If God's word, the reason Romans 9 is so important, I know we get kind of bogged down and we will get a bit bogged down here in a little bit in, in a couple of weeks. 
really Romans 9 is Paul's defense of the nature and character and faithfulness of God. Because if, if it is true, if it can be found to be true that God's word has failed and God has not kept his promises, then all of Romans 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1 are of no good to us. If God could be proven to be unfaithful to his promise, then forget Romans 8. This is why it's radically important for us to, to see what, what's going on here. It has massive implications for the gospel. Massive. Now, look at verse 6. So you see the first five verses are really Paul's pastoral burden and heart. He's, he's wading into this, this reality, this dilemma, through his grief and through his sorrow and through the fact that Israel had so many privileges and yet denied them. And then his conclusion is, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Answer, well, how do we know that, Paul? His answer is in 6b. For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. That verse right there is majorly important. If you don't get that verse, you're not going to understand the rest of these chapters. Radically important statements. Not all who are Israel belong to Israel. Now that may sound a little confusing. We're going to unpack it. Simply put, being an ethnic Jew did not automatically make one part of the true spiritual people of God. That's what he says. Listen, God made promises to Israel, but here, here's what we've got to get. God never, never promised to save every physical descendant of Abraham. Chapter 9, verse 27 Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. This is his argument here. Then he goes on to illustrate his point by looking back at a couple of Old Testament individuals, the account of Abraham in particular. So you're with me so far. The vast majority of the Israelites have rejected Christ and Paul's answer to that is, well, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, just physical descendants, ethnic people, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. He is quoting there from Genesis chapter 18. He's talking about the life of Abraham and his descendants. We know that in the account of Abraham, if you go back to read the book of Genesis, God made a promise and a covenant with Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be the father of many nations. All the families. All the families, if you were to do a long study on that, really what he's saying is that all the people groups are, of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Amazing. This is a promise, and, and, and he says, and it's going to come through a son. Well, as time goes on, Abraham and Sarah aren't getting any younger. They get that, and so they're like, well, 
He said it's going to come, and we're going to have descendants, and so we're going to have to have a son. They can't physically have children. There's issues going on there. There's age involved. There's all kinds of things involved. And so what they do is they take things into their own hand, and Sarah's um, uh, servant, Hagar, she's an Egyptian. Abraham has a son through her, Ishmael. And God says, that's not, that's not how I said it was going to go down. You're going to have a son through Sarah, and his name shall be Isaac. It would be Isaac through whom the promise would flow, not Ishmael. Both were promised descendants, or both were promised descendants. You can go into detail and see the descendants of Ishmael and later on his descendants and keep going. But it was only through Isaac that the true Israel, the Israel within Israel, we could say, would develop and grow, and, and, and this is what, we're, what we have. So the conclusion Paul is saying here is, is, is just simply this. Salvation is not merely a Jewish birthright. I'm grieved that so many of them are lost. I'm sorrowful. I, even, even if it was possible, verse 3, even if it was possible that I myself could be accursed, anathema, damned, cut off from Christ. It's not possible because of Romans 8, but even if it were possible, I, I wish I could be cut off so that they could be saved. And then, St. Paul that's grieved makes this statement. Well, grieved as I may be, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For God never promised to save every single Israelite according to the flesh. We see that because it came through Isaac. Promise flows through Isaac. And really, when you think about the story of Isaac, I mean, it was a miraculous situation. The point of the story of Isaac is this, is Abraham's offspring doesn't come by human achievement, but by divine miracle. Abraham and Sarah tried to take it upon themselves to conceive through Hagar, and God said, no, it's not through human achievement that my promises are going to unfold. It's by divine miracle. Sarah, it's going to be through you that these divine promises will unfold. But Isaac reminds us of something Paul has already said in the book of Romans in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. You look back there, it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So all Paul is saying is that Jewishness doesn't save you. It's not a matter of outward appearance. It's not a matter of your ethnicity. What matters is whether or not your heart has been changed. It's the children of promise, not the children of the flesh. And we, we, if you go to Romans chapter 4, we, we continue to see, and we've been here already many months ago. If you begin in verse 13, the, the promise is, is being revealed here. For the promise, verse, uh, Romans 4 verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law that were to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace, 
and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, quotes Genesis, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who he gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. So in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as had he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah. She was barren, they were old, he was 100, she was in her 90s. No distress, verse 20, made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All he's saying here is that not all Israel are Israel. Not, not all who are physically descendant Israelites are going to be part of the true people of God. It can't be any clearer in Romans chapter 9. Salvation comes by promise and faith in that promise. Now, what does that have to do with us in 2018 here today? Just a couple of things to, to take away from this. First of all, Salvation has absolutely nothing to do with your ethnicity, your family heritage, your culture, or your identity. None of that is the means through which God saves you, or the reason, we could say. No amount of religious privilege makes you automatically right with God. No amount of Bible knowledge, church involvement, being born into a Christian family, on and on we could go, none of that secures anything eternally for you, as great as those things are. None of that. So, if you're banking upon family heritage or some kind of ethnicity or some kind of church activity and involvement or Bible knowledge to somehow get you into heaven, you are deceived. Salvation has absolutely nothing to do with those things. Now, kids, listen to me for a minute. Whoever's a kid, some of you adults, that means you, you too. Now, children, you should be thankful that you have parents or grandparents or people in your life that bring you to church. You should be thankful for that. I hope you're thankful for that. Sometimes it's tough to get up early in the morning and we're cranky and, oh, do I have to go to church? You should be thankful that mom and dad or whoever's in your life brings you to church. It's a wonderful thing. You should be thankful that you are being raised up in a home where your parents make it a priority to honor the Lord. You should thank God for that. You should thank God for your Sunday school teachers. You should thank the Lord for having a Bible. Not many people, not, there's people in the world that don't have a Bible, and you actually have a Bible. You should thank, thank God for that. You should thank God for all of these things, but listen, none of those things can make you a Christian. Just because your mom and dad might be Christians doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you come to Sunday school every week, that doesn't make you a Christian. 
What makes you a Christian is believing the promise of God ultimately we find in Jesus. That's what makes you a Christian. And so when you think about what it means to follow Jesus, that's what it means. Follow Jesus. Thank God for your parents and your grandparents and your family members and your brothers and sisters and and all of the people that God has put into your life, even your Sunday school teachers. Thank God for those people. But just because you do these things doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven. If you want to go to heaven and be with Jesus, you must believe in him and trust him to forgive you of your sins, and and then you become a Christian. That's very important. This is exactly, it may kind of seem over your head at this point in Romans 9, but that's what Paul is saying. Being religious, doing religious things, doesn't automatically make you right with God. We can say it this way, many people have said this before, it's by grace, not race, that you're saved. Promise comes to those who have faith in the promise. Promise of salvation. Second, and I've already kind of hit this, is you should be thankful for your Christian heritage. If you were blessed, you know, sometimes I will hear Christians that were raised in the church and they're asked to give their testimony and they're like, ah, oh, my, my testimony's not very exciting. I mean, I grew up going to Sunday school. I went to vacation Bible school. For those of you who remember what that was. I did all of these things. I mean, I've always, I've not known anything different. And there was a day that, oh yeah, I need Jesus. And God really worked in my life. And I believed in him. And I'm a Christian and kept going to church and kept doing the same things. And now with joy in my heart for God. So I mean, I wasn't strung out on crack. I wasn't living some kind of wild lifestyle. I mean, my, my testimony's boring. Friend, praise God that you, by God's grace, were allowed to be part of the family of God even early on. Never apologize for your testimony. Never apologize for how God used Christian families early in your life, and that's all that you've ever known. Praise God that you have that. Many don't. Praise God for that. Be thankful for your Christian heritage. Praise God for godly parents. Praise God for faithful teachers and preachers. Praise God for people who come along and help you navigate your Bible Be thankful for Christian heritage, but never presume upon it. I used to, I mean, I used to know people that they would put their Bible in their dash as if that was some kind of good luck charm. Drive around with their Bible in their dash. Guys back in the South, they do that. I was like, what? Take it out and read it. Be thankful, but listen. Never squander it. That was the problem with Israel. They had all these things. And they wasted it. God's word hasn't failed at all. Reason number one is because God's word came through divine promise. Yet there's a second reason as to why God's word hasn't failed, and that comes, we see in verses 10 through 13 what we call divine election. In verse 10, Paul continues with another Old Testament example to make this point. This time, the birth of Isaac's son through Rebekah. You might be able to say, well, okay, I see why God chose Isaac. Um, it's kind of, you could say, well, Hagar was, kinda, they, they did that on their own. Um, she came from Egypt, and so it wasn't within the, the realms of what God was doing at the time. By the way, 
um, people make this argument. And so I can understand why now it came through as a bit. But just to clarify things, what, what Paul does here is, I just want to be clear. So now we're talking about Isaac and his wife Rebecca and their two sons. So you have one mother in this case. The, the previous example had two, there were two women involved. Now there's just one. We're not dealing with two separate mothers, but one. And twin boys at that, Jacob and Esau. We see that there are a few, a few observations about their birth. Let me just read the passage. Verse 10, and not only so, so not only Isaac as an example, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, that's Isaac, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had nothing, done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So both Jacob and Esau had the same mother and father. And yet what we're told in verse 10 and 11 is that it would be Jacob that would be the recipient of the promise, not Esau. And what's critical about understanding that is that this was declared before they were even born. Jacob would be declared as preeminent, not Esau. And that was important because Jacob was not born first. It was usually the firstborn that received all of the blessings. Jacob was not the firstborn. He was the secondborn. And so God reverses the birth order here in essence. And Paul makes it clear that Jacob's calling, that God choosing Jacob was not based on his position, his birth order, nor his works before he had done good or bad, we're told. So God didn't look ahead and see, how's it going to go with Jacob and Esau? Okay, that one seems to be doing a little bit better. I'm going to go with him. That's not how it goes down. Verses 10 and 11 can't be any clearer. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Friends, if anything, Jacob was the one that deserved to be rejected. Go read Genesis 27. He was a deceitful man. He was not someone that we could look to, at least early on, as someone with high regard, in high regard. Now, we see that, okay, Jacob is chosen, not Esau. The older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Verse 13 is a quote from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And sometimes people are troubled by that language. Rightfully so. I mean, it's, whoa, that sounds extreme. I think it's just simply a, a way that God uses this language here to talk about the fact that Jacob was chosen and not Esau. So what we have emerging from this passage is what we refer to as the doctrine of election. Jacob was chosen to inherit the promise, not Esau. And the reason behind that is given. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of what? His call. She was told the older would serve the younger. Now some will want to step in and say, well, what this is really talking about is a kind of a corporate election or a political identity that we're after here. But friends, the context makes crystal clear that individual salvation is what is in view. Paul's burden 
was not a, it, it, it was, he, he was burdened because there were so many individual Jews that were not being saved. The doctrine of election is in many ways a challenging and perplexing doctrine, yet without it, no one would be saved. I think it's true. A lot of times people want to emphasize that this is unconditional election. I think that verse 11 is an unconditional election. Not because of his position, birth order, not because of his works, good or bad. Jacob was chosen, not Esau. Paul seems to be going out of his way here to highlight the absolute sovereign freedom God has in electing some to inherit the promises while rejecting others. Not because of works, but because of his call. Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher in England in the 1800s, said, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterward. Now, okay, we begin to wrestle with this and automatically we have questions popping into our head. What about faith? Doesn't someone have to believe in order to be saved? Yes, that's in Romans 10. But Romans 9 comes first. Faith is absolutely essential. No one will be saved unless they believe in Christ, turn from their sins and trust in Christ. St. Augustine put it this way, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. You've got to get that order correct. God doesn't choose us because we believe, but so that we may believe. Saving faith is the evidence of God's divine election. I think a great example that you see in the Bible, you can go to Acts chapter 13. And this is where Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. And he is preaching a long sermon there. And we pick up in verse 44. People were hanging on their words as they were preaching. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Bartimaeus spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you, tr- since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 48 is key. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It doesn't say, and as many believed were appointed to eternal life. It says in the text, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Saving faith is absolutely essential. It's the evidence, though, of a divine work of grace in your life. Many other questions come to mind. Listen, those who do not believe in the gospel will receive what they want and deserve. There will be no one in hell that loves God 
and wanted to follow Jesus, but God said no. Everyone in hell will be given what they wanted and deserve. Keep that in mind as you wrestle through these things. What falls on our ears uh, immediately when we hear this kind of thing was, how can this be fair? How can God choose some and not others? How is it that God chose Jacob and not Esau or Isaac and not Ishmael? That's not fair. It sounds unjust. Ha, Paul anticipates that objection. Verse 14, we're going to look at this in two weeks. Next week, something different. Mother's Day. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So he's anticipating that, re- that, that objection. By no means, he says, and he's going to unpack that. That's in two weeks. We're going to look more about that how this idea of divine election, how we cannot say that it's unfair. Yet for now we're left to contemplate the reality of God's saving purposes regarding Israel. God's God's promise went out to Israel as a whole, yet the vast majority had rejected Christ. So has God's word failed? No. Because salvation is based on God's promise and based upon his sovereign election. So neither ethnic roots or human fruit counts towards salvation. Application. Five things I want us to take away briefly. One, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are friends, not foes. There's much that remains a mystery to us. It's a mystery to me. I still don't understand it fully, how God can choose and elect and sovereignly work in salvation among individuals, and yet we are still held accountable to believe in the gospel. It's a mystery to me in many ways. God elects to salvation, yet we're responsible to believe. No one will be saved apart from election and apart from from faith. No one. God elects, we're responsible, God works, we're accountable. It seems like a contradiction in our, in our minds, but we must not see them as such. In the mysterious providence of God, they work together. No one will be saved if they aren't a recipient of God's electing grace, chapter 9, and yet no one will be saved unless they believe in Jesus Christ, chapter 10. God has both ordained the end, those who will be saved, and the means to the end. God doesn't just elect and say, okay, that's it. Just automatically, no, his election is true, but there's also the means to the end. The preaching of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, the responding in faith, all are part of this divine plan. And so not only has God ordained the end, he has also ordained the means to that end. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are friends, not foes. Number two, the doctrine of election is motivation for evangelism. Let no one tell you otherwise. Many people that are critical of the doctrine of unconditional election are quick to say, well, that just snuffs out evangelism. But friend, that is simply not true. It's not true. If anything, the doctrine of election guarantees success in evangelism. This means that there are people out there among all the nations. All the families of the earth will be blessed, we're told. Abraham was told. There are people out there among all the nations that will believe in Christ. And we've been commissioned as a church to go get them. Because part of that 
end that we have to keep in mind is the means to the end. The elect will be gathered through the preaching of the gospel and through the sharing of the gospel and the hearing and responding to the gospel. See that in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Again, Paul is in Corinth. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. Romans 9 just reminds us that Paul just didn't cast the Jews under the bus. He's still burdened for them. And he left there, verse 7, and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with the entire household. And many of the Christian or Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Correct order, belief, baptism, side note. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. Preach the gospel, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you for reason. I have many people in this city who are my people. There's the motivation to keep preaching the gospel. I have many people in this city who are mine. Go get them. Friends, I would not want to do evangelism if election weren't true. Quite the contrary. If God hasn't elected, forget evangelism. Because then we're dependent upon the self-determining wills of sinful fallen people. Good luck with that. It's only because God's sovereign that we go forth in missions and evangelism. Friends, the same Paul that wrote Romans 9, 6 through 29 is the same Paul grieved and burdened and weeping in Romans 9, 1 through 5. It's also the same Paul that talks about the purpose of divine sovereign election. It's the same Paul risking his neck for the salvation of so many people scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. Do you think for a minute that divine sovereignty limited Paul's evangelism? Not a chance. It catapulted him to the nations. Catapulted him. So I never will buy this argument, which is a terrible argument, that, well, if God's sovereign evangel- or in, in salvation, well, why should we preach the gospel? Because it's all over the Bible. It's because how, this is the way God draws his elect in. That's why. This brother had a high view of God's sovereignty and knew that apart from the initiative and working of God, no one would be saved, and yet he lived his life as a missionary, pleading with people to repent and believe. Number three, religious unbelievers are a tragedy. Religious unbelievers are a tragedy. To have the privileges Israel had only to squander them is an enormous tragedy. Friends, I just want to to counsel you today. For those of you, all of us who are in this room, look at all you have access to today. Look, Old and New Testament, complete revelation of God. Not to mention the countless resources we have today. Through technology, all that we have access to and the abilities that we have. We have God's word, we have the gospel, we have the people of God There's no other point in human history where we had so much access to God's truth. 
We have the complete revelation of God. We've seen the movement of the gospel spread through the nations, just as God said it would. We've got more opportunity today than ever before, and yet there will be many in our churches whom the Lord will look at on Judgment Day and say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a tragedy. And how all that works with divine sovereignty is still mysterious to me. But the burden of what Scripture places on us many times over is that we are accountable to what we have. And it is a tragedy to have the gospel so clearly in front of you preached week after week after week after week after week and to say, no thank you. Or, just kind of keep my foot in the door, I'm not going to live like a Christian, I'll just kind of stay connected just in case. That's a tragedy. Friends, don't allow, you the distract, don't allow the distractions of this world to rob you of the treasure of walking with Christ. Knowing Jesus in a saving way is by far the most important thing in the world. Thus the reason Paul is so burdened and grieved. Don't let people look at you down the road and say, wow, I mean, they grew up in the church. They grew up in the church. And now look at them. Don't let that be you, friend. Don't let that be you. Number four, are you burdened for lost friends and family? You know, when I read Romans 1, or 9, 1 through 5, it's convicting. It's convicting. Do we grieve and weep over the lostness that surrounds us? Are you burdened and grieved and sorrowful in anguish over family members and friends and acquaintances that don't know Christ? You find yourself praying for the salvation of your friends and family members. We have no idea who's elect and who's not. And one of the realities that we need to consider is that while God is in control, He may have ordained your very prayers and your very pleas to be the means through which he brings his elect to himself. So don't stop pleading and praying. Keep praying, keep pleading for people to come to Christ. And number five, are you humbled by grace? Friends, when I read this passage, God's grace and salvation undercuts all human pride. There's not a person that's a Christian that can say, I did that. Friend, if you are saved today, it's a testimony to the amazing grace indeed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now some will get caught up with all of this talk of election and wonder, well, why would God not choose that person? But the better question The better question is this, why would God choose you? Why in the world would God choose any of us? We all are unworthy. Romans 3, all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God and deserve his righteous anger and wrath. There's no good apple in the bunch. We're all rotten to the core. The fact that he even saves any is a testimony to his amazing, glorious grace. And so when I read this passage, I'm not getting mad and saying, well, why does he do this? I'm thinking, wow, why did he save me? Why? 
I give no evidence and no reason why God should ever have set his loving affection upon me. None whatsoever. And yet God saves people. And are you humbled by that grace? And I, I think a lot of times we hear a lot of talk about well, we're saved by grace and not works. I wonder how many of us really believe that. How many of us really believe that? Do you really believe you're saved by grace and not works? It will show itself in just how humble you truly are and how grateful to God you truly are. Brothers and sisters, God's word has not failed because it depends on him, not us. Praise God that our salvation is not dependent upon our ethnicity or our ability, but on God's sovereignty, whereby he freely extends grace to sinners. To him be the glory and praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and for this time in your word, and we ask now that you would help us. Lord, as we wrestle with these things, Lord, that we would ultimately be humbled and that we would be grateful and that we would be bold ambassadors for our sovereign king. Father, we're thankful that though it may seem that the evidence around us points to a failure in your plan, that we're reminded that you are sovereign and that your purposes cannot be thwarted, that your ways cannot be denied. Father, it is through your purpose, through your promise, that your salvation continues. We praise you for that. We thank you for the blessing that we have of being recipients of that good news we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.